0: Well, thank you again for joining us here on the Freed Thinker Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Tyler Vella. This is your no-must, no-fuss, one-stop shop for all of your freed thinking needs. I vow to you, my faithful, my dutiful, my wonderful listeners and fans, that I won't spend... The first quarter of my show telling you boring details about my life outside of the studio that, let's be honest, are just not really all that exciting. I know it. You know it. And so why bother, right? Right. Well, with that, let's get on with getting on. On today's episode, I'm going to start a response series to a couple of episodes of the Thinking Atheist radio show, where the Thinking Atheist and his guests from the Atheist Experience, Matthew Dillahunty and Tracy Harris, as well as Atheist blogger Aaron Ra, delve into two lengthy episodes on (laughs) counter-apologetics. The thinking atheist, or what I am coming to realize is the unthinking atheist, and the anti-theist fundamentalist experience team up in this circle of backpattery and irrational, misleading, sometimes downright deceptive polemics. Now, besides the fact that I've never been a big fan of cheerleading introductions, the kind of rah-rah Collage of uh, audio memes that basically uh, get your get your listeners riled up that they're going to agree with your position no matter what. Uh, Besides that, come on, don't you know that religion is losing the battle on a hundred fronts, and that if you're a thinker, you're going to be an atheist? Don't don't you know that? It's that kind of rhetoric that just makes my skin crawl and for a lot of you who are atheists listening to me I know from the comments makes your skin crawl as well well the introduction to this episode of the unthinking atheist is no exception to the rule Uh, but yes that's a little off topic Uh, but so is his beginning now now if you listen to the episode you can skip the first eight minutes Uh, I'm sorry that your kitty was having a bad hair day at the groomers, but can I have that eight minutes of my life back? By the way, this is the same gripe that I have with all radio and podcasts across the board. As much as I love you, yes, that means you too stand to reason. Uh, Basically, there's no fruit of the subject until we get to about nine minutes into the episode after the introductions And that's where we're going to cut in On today's episode I'm going to do something a little bit different You're going to hear the complete audio But as they go I'm going to insert myself As if I was sitting in studio with them Maybe as a little uh, Angel or devil depending on what your view is Sitting on their shoulder Just kind of chiming in uh, What what really They should have been thinking and talking about uh, So you'll you'll see as we go how really really problematic this gets so really if you want to skip to uh this first audio clip is going to come at about the nine minute mark and it's going to go until about 10:53, and that's what we'll kick off from there enjoy the show and
1: so when i was putting the show together i thought well who would be great on the air who could speak to this type of stuff especially sort of in the shadow of the may 31st debate in memphis tennessee by the way matt well played and well done at that debate i don't know How would you feel about the exchange after the fact? Did you look at it and have any thoughts about you, about Psy, about the evening in general?
2: Yeah, you know, I've watched, I actually watched the whole thing twice because I watched it as soon as it went up and then Beth wanted to watch it. So we watched it that evening and having lived it once and and watched it twice, uh, I have a lot of things to say. I mean, you know, I. It's difficult when you're trying to do a public debate. It's different than the kind of conversational debates that we have, you know, with the call in show. And you, you come up with a strategy. I think parts of it uh, worked really well. I think parts of it did not. I made mistakes, some of them, at least one glaring error, and then a couple of things could have been better. So I might do kind of a a commentary video to accompany the debate so that I can get all of my thoughts out about it.
1: It was a little alarming at the beginning, you know, when Psy is like, it has been revealed to me that it's true. It is therefore reasonable to believe it because it is true. Therefore, it is reasonable to believe that God exists. I mean, that was it. That was all he brought to the table for two hours. It was alarming. And is that a common precept thing or is that just Psy's particular
2: angle? I think that's mostly Psy. I mean you know, even during the questions there was somebody who was asking about other types of presuppositionalists and Matt Slick had called into the Atheist experience before to do the transcendental argument for the existence of God, which is a form of, of the, it's, a, it's an attempt to justify presuppositionalism, I guess. I think Psy is, his particular style is a little more flat than some others. I mean, he got away from doing evidence-based arguments
0: Okay, I have a lot of things to say about the debate also, and to be fair to Matt, I've been pretty critical myself of Cy 10 Bruton-Kate's quote-unquote presuppositional apologetics as well. My criticisms for the debate uh, between the two would be pretty evenly spread between Matt and Cy, so I think a lot of his criticisms of Cy's tactics, at least, uh, could be pretty well-founded. We're going to get into more detail on this when we get into their criticisms of presuppositionalism with this next clip.
2: And he – like I said during the debate, they've they've latched onto this idea that they have cracked one of the problems of philosophy and that they're the only ones who can solve it and nobody else can. And they don't demonstrate this in any way. They just keep saying it over and over again and use people's honesty about acknowledging that they could be wrong and expanding that into something that it just shouldn't be.
0: Okay, that's a big jump. How do they suddenly go from it just being size flat presentation to they, 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 as if it's all presuppositionalists or all apologetics even? Now, we're going to get into the subject as we go, but if he thinks that presuppositionalism is just tapping into people's honesty that they might be wrong— He's just failed to understand what presuppositionalism is, on par with thinking that Romeo and Juliet is a comedy. Now, this is this is surprising, but not surprising at the same time. Now, he's had Matthew Slick on the show, and Matthew Slick isn't always the best example either. But he's still much more robust than what Matt Dillon hunty is leading on right now. He either has no clue and has no understanding of what presuppositionalism is or he's completely leading us around by the nose.
1: This sort of seems to be kind of an aha moment. Look, he just admitted that he could be wrong, that he really doesn't know anything, as if that's a trump card. It seems like kind of a cheat, because they're essentially saying, I'm the only one in the room who
3: can know. That's exactly what he was saying. I mean, to my experience, presuppositional arguments are always, I'm right because I said so.
0: Wait, I'm right because I said so. (laughs) then you've just failed to listen to what the argument is.
1: Tracy, do you have like a favorite apologist argument when you hear it? Do you have that extra vein pop in your forehead <laughs> when it, you hear it on the show or when you're in discussions out there? Is there some specific just sort of cooks your noodle more than the others?
4: A lot of them, to me, all just fall into the same category. They tend to me to be this problem of, putting a cart before the horse, where people want to talk about the attributes of God or the effects of God before they've actually demonstrated a God. And I find a lot of time gets spent. I I can't, I'm not really talking here about the, the debates that are set up with specific questions, because those, they have questions already in place that they're going to address. So in those instances, you have a topic that's already there. And so you have to talk about that but I see so many people get tied up in like arguing about the Bible or arguing about creationism or argue. And it's just like, there's not even a God demonstrated yet. So why, why is this discussion even happening? Like, how did it even get this far? And that to me is, is kind of the frustrating thing is the the amount of time spent on what I perceive as as red herrings.
0: Cart before the horse. (laughs) Okay. Uh, want to talk about the attributes of God before proving God, Bible, creation, how did it get this far, red herrings... I, t- uh, Tracy, I'm not sure you know what that term is if you use it that way. Now, now I would need a for instance to actually get a grip of what really you're talking about, but I often find that when I'm getting into these discussions about the Bible or something like that, it's because the skeptic has said something like, well, the Bible is full of contradictions, And I asked them to justify that claim.
1: I hear a lot from people, I'd like to learn more so that I can go into these discussions and understand the arguments being made and also understand how to get through or past or not even play some of the word games that apologists play.
0: Okay, I don't have so much of a problem with this, but I have been told so many times by atheists that apologetics is the exercise of coming up with arguments after the fact of having beliefs. I can't put my finger on the exact time, but I'm fairly confident I've heard basically that from all four of these people on this episode at different places. And so at what point will they be consistent and apply that to their listeners? Those people who are atheists who want to be, quote unquote, educated on why the apologists must be wrong and their arguments fail. How is that not looking for arguments to support the conclusion you already hold? I actually don't think there is anything wrong with holding a belief and looking for what supports it. We do it all the time, and that's how you overcome objections, so long as you try to be unbiased in evaluating the evidence. But here, if they're going to criticize Christians for it, they should at least be consistent.
1: So, um... Matt, you'd mentioned just a second ago the transcendental argument for the existence of God. Do you want to define that argument for us, and we'll talk about it for a second?
2: Sure. This one's actually, you know, not that common. The the Those who are taking this deep philosophical tact or engaged in presuppositionalist arguments, they're not really the predominant. I mean, it's not like William Lane Craig is—I don't think he's ever used it. I'm not sure that he ever would. And it comes in a bunch of different forms. One of the forms— is an attempt to define logic as, or the foundations of logic, the the laws of identity, non-contradiction, and excluded middle, as something that is the product of a mind and that is absolute, and therefore there must be an absolute mind behind them, and that mind is God. There's a number of different ways to kind of format the argument. There are countless problems to try to address with this. The version that Well, I I can't even say there's a version that Cy used because Cy only presented one actual structured argument, which is, it is reasonable to believe that which is true, as his first premise, which is false. His second premise was, it's true that God exists, therefore it's reasonable to believe that God exists. And that was just him trying to construct something that would answer the question of the debate. Matt Slick, who runs Karm.org, had called in and presented a much more structured version of the transcendental argument for the existence of God, and we had like a 45-minute discussion about it.
0: I agree. Psy doesn't present it well. So far, so good. But wait, it gets
1: worse. Aaron, do you want to jump in here at all on the transcendental argument for the existence of God?
3: well it sounds like what matt was talking about is probably the same argument or uh, in a variation of it the same argument that i have problems with or the ones that irritate me the most it's that fallacy of you know, fred hoyle's tornado in the junkyard you know you that all of the elements of life have to come together all at the same time because there's no way that incrementally, it doesn't matter how many peer-reviewed scientific journals show that the sequential developmental steps of any given component, they think that all matter has to just have assumed itself, assembled itself in a whirlwind all at once and that it has to come from a mind and that there's no way that anything could accidentally or incidentally ever form a pattern. There's no way a pattern could emerge. There's no such thing as emergent complexity. There's no such thing as coincidence, you know, by definition, there can't be a coincidence in these people's heads. And so everything has to be what they say is we know that an intelligent mind is the only source for the development of patterns, for the development of function, for the development of anything that works to any degree at all, by any means whatsoever.
0: Tornado in a junkyard? A tornado in a junkyard? What a weird objection to the transcendental argument. The transcendental argument is ridiculous because look at this totally unrelated argument that theists sometimes use to try and undermine unguided natural processes as explanations for the complexity of information and functions we observe in the natural world. Did you catch that? The tag is unreasonable. The transcendental argument for the existence of God is unreasonable, Because the design inference made in a completely other argument is unreasonable. Which it isn't, but so they say. But the transcendental argument is unreasonable because a completely unrelated argument might be unreasonable. And that's what's reasonable?
3: It's a denial of reason.
0: Denial of reason? Wait, wait denial of reason okay since they don't actually engage with the transcendent argument from here on out but rather just mock it or or get into uh, subjective psychoanalytical uh you know kind of what is their worst intentions for why they believe a type of genetic fallacy uh We will see shortly um, that they start to really call into question the intentions of apologists for why they argue that way, which which we're going to see – why it's so irrational. it's such an irrational critique uh, when we get to those little pearls of nonsense. but since they won't actually present a charitable representation of the argument, let me do it really, really quickly and then show why it's ridiculous for him to call it a denial of reason. When the transcendental argument is successful, he must deny reason to employ it as he does. The transcendental argument is way more simple than most people think it is. It's basically the argument that we observe in reality a realm of abstract, universal, absolute, transcendent, immutable laws of thought and rules of inference for true thought. There are laws of logic, like the law of excluded middle, and there are logical inferences, like modus ponens, modus tollens, or hypothetical syllogism, which are the correct steps to move from true premises to true conclusions. These laws and rules are not spatial, they're not temporal, they do not reside in a single location or atom, they're not material, and in fact, Even on all coherent natural accounts, they are transcendent to the natural cosmos. The person who wants to deny this runs themselves headlong into the ground of all kinds of contradictions later on. Now, Matt will soon say that he thinks that this is probably true. The position I've just stated about the laws of logic. Not that they're uh, not, not the incoherent natural versions. In my experience, the only reason it is quote-unquote probably is because he wants to leave himself an out when his naturalistic worldview is torn to shreds. Basically, he's willing to derail his own train because he'll be damned if he lets the theist derail it later. But I digress. Matt will say that he basically agrees that that, uh, this is what the laws of logic are. So the question uh, is raised... What is the possible foundation for such a realm of abstract, universal, absolute, transcendent, immutable laws of thought and rules of inference for true thought, if not a mind? This is the major problem for naturalism. To not take this challenge seriously is to just sink his own ship in ignorance. This is similar to the challenge that sunk logical positivism a generation ago and is already showing massive inroads into the dismantling naturalism today. You have current philosophers like Thomas Nagel, who's an atheist, who basically recognized the hard problem of consciousness and the inability to ground laws of logic as the death knell for naturalism. Others will say that in order to keep naturalism, we must abandon the view of logic as absolute or universal and just view it as a phenomenological feature that we project onto the world. Both of these options seem anathema to the thoroughly modernist, anti-theist, and atheistic uh, fundamentalists like the unthinking atheist and Matty D here. Their entire empire is built on the rhetoric that they are the defenders of logic and reason. They cannot allow logic to just be a social construct, because then people can have different logics. And yet, what is the possible basis for the laws of logic on Matt's naturalism? You will listen in vain for anything even remotely approaching an answer. Part of the history of defending the transcendental argument is the position known as the impossibility of the contrary, basically that categorically, anything that is not God cannot possibly ground the laws of logic. We can be confident to know that God exists not only because God is an adequate explanation and foundation for the laws of logic and, by the way, other features of reality like fine-tuning the beginning of the cosmos, persons, human mi- human rights, minds, uh, uh, object- objective moral values and duties, specified complexity, and on and on, but also that it is impossible that God exists not be the ground of being for all these features. For a really great presentation of this, I recommend checking out four lectures by Greg Bonson on, that are available on iTunes U called Vantillian Apologetics, and they're found through Westminster Seminary. So presuppositionalism is the denial of reason. I mean, no, it's the position that naturalists like Matt cannot reason on their own worldview because their own worldview can't account for the laws of logic they're seeking to use. The transcendental argument is basically a very philosophical way of theists telling naturalists to get off our lawn or at least admit they're on our lawn. So for Matt to just axiomatically appeal to reason to get out of it just ...begs the very question being asked, and to simply point to reason actually supports the transcendental argument. The transcendental argument asks the naturalists what the foundation is for logic on their own worldview. They cannot then just say, well, we use logic as an answer. It's like when you're trying to get your dog to see something and you keep pointing to it, but they just keep licking your finger... We are asking for the foundation for the laws of logic on naturalism, so simply pointing to logic itself is not an answer. It's a downright dishonest tactic to then pretend that some kind of psychologizing about why theists want this argument to be valid is anything like a rational response to it. These guys are not stupid by any means, so they're either hopelessly self-deceived or else they're trying to deceive their listeners. If the former, then they should pack up and go home since they don't have the level of understanding that we should expect for someone to run a national radio or television show on these topics, or if the latter, they should repent of their dishonesty. Either way, as they say in the South, it ain't good.
3: These people don't want to know what the real case is. They want to find whatever it is that evolution or science can't explain in order so that they can deny everything that evolution definitely can explain and which only evolution can explain.
0: Whatever evolution or science can't explain. Well, yeah, that's part of the problem, Maddie. Uh, what Matt is here conflating is naturalism and evolution. That is part of the problem. It is not that evolution cannot explain the laws of logic, which it can't. It's that naturalism cannot account for the laws of logic. And notice when when Matt here conflates the two, uh, such that to deny naturalism is to deny evolution and science. I mean, why would it be a problem if evolution can't explain the laws of logic? So what? It can't explain a whole lot of things. Evolution isn't meant to explain everything. It explains biodiversity. Why should we think that evolution can be a foundation for the laws of logic? He seems to think that apologists only do it to deny what evolution can explain, which is ridiculous. Hey, Matt, we don't all reject evolution. In fact, I would say that this has nothing to do with evolution. Here, he's just trying to make apologists look bad by the old they-hate-science kind of rhetoric. I mean, if you can show that they're anti-science, anti-evolutionary Luddites, you've clearly won the argument, right? Rather than deal with the actual argument, he runs full sprint into psychologizing and misrepresentation. It's much easier to misrepresent and psychologize than it is to actually engage with arguments, after all. And which only evolution can explain? Really? Only evolution can explain the laws of logic? Did the laws of logic not exist before biological evolution? So before evolution kicked in, contradictions could, could be true. I mean, I can think of all kinds of explanations that can explain the same things as evolution. They just don't have the bonus of being plausibly true like evolution does. I'm not even going to, to, get, to here get into the impossibility of evolutionary science to show the metaphysical claim about if evolution is guided or unguided rather than merely assume it, which is fine on metaphysical naturalism to do. We don't multiply causes where we don't need to, But assuming minimal causes doesn't prove that those are the only causes. So even his philosophy of science is terrible.
2: It's even worse than them not knowing or claiming that they do know. It's this discomfort with that there could be something for which they do not have an explanation.
0: Discomfort that there might be something that we don't have an answer for. Discomfort. Really? Have they done a full psych eval on all or even most apologists? I mean, I mean, here we're starting to see the inkling of the kind of Christianity that they came from. I've often commented on the apparent relationship uh, with the more fundamentalistic <clears throat> the Christianity that they left to the more fundamentalist the kind of atheism they embrace. We're seeing some of the first signs here, uh, and we'll get that full-blown later on. Now here, Matty D. had some some certainty issues when he was a Christian and couldn't handle uncertainty. Ironic also, uh, since he seems to be certain about his total unfounded psychological generalizations, but that has absolutely nothing to do with the truth of the arguments. So we go from misrepresentation to psychologizing from weakness to weakness
2: something I tried to point out a little bit at the uh, Refining Reason debate, which is Cy and I would both agree that the logical absolutes are true.
0: Great. We agree that they are true. Now, how do you base that within your worldview?
2: And I am convinced that they're absolute. I don't claim to know this. I mean, I could be wrong about it, but all of the evidence points in this direction and none of it points in the other direction. And how
0: do you do that? how do you use, what do you use to evaluate the evidence you use the laws of logic so why do you believe that all the evidence points in that direction because the laws of logic and rules of inference confirm it why on a naturalistic worldview would that be possible now he says it's possible that the laws of logic aren't absolute By the way, notice the irony of the so-called rationalist, the defender of logic, saying that logic isn't absolute, and that it's the theist saying that logic is absolute. Just notice the irony. But I think that he's being even more irrational here. He doesn't actually believe that. Why? Because he says he would be willing to change his mind if the evidence showed that the laws of logic weren't absolute. Well, how would you know then that the the evidence showed the laws of logic weren't absolute? Well, by the absolute laws of logic, of course. I mean, if if he thinks that it's possible that it fails, then it doesn't. That might sound bizarre, but if the laws of logic can fail, then contradictions can be true. So the evidence would show that the laws of logic could fail, and so they don't show that it could fail. For those scratching your heads, Matty D. just opened up the door to... A patent contradictions. If they can fail, then contradictions are possible. So if it's true, then it's false. And that's okay with him. And so on. But he only could say that and want us to intelligibly understand him if the laws of logic are absolute, which is not possible on his naturalistic worldview. So again, he's borrowing the theistic worldview to even talk logically, or in this case, illogically, about the laws of logic. And on what basis can he deny that? He can only do so by appealing to necessary universal, eternal, absolute, immaterial, immutable, transcendent laws of thought, something not afforded to him by his naturalistic
1: worldview.
2: And then there comes the question of why are they absolute, or why are they true? And I don't even know, you know, and I would all have discussions with, you know, Ozymandias and others about whether or not that's even a coherent question. I'm not necessarily convinced it is. To me, like I said during the debate, it's kind of similar to why is one one? You know, it's – I don't know that there is an explanation for it. And they're not only asserting that there must be, but that they have it, and yet they cannot demonstrate it. It's just they're going to presuppose this, and to me that's just a violation of Occam's Razor.
0: Yes. Why is one one? Because it is, equals, and we're the ones who are... I mean, and there's someone saying that we're the ones assuming? He's just baldly asserting it as an axiomatic truth. Saying it is a meaningless question to even ask for grounding of them. The only people who ever say questions are meaningless questions simply because on your worldview you have no answer are the ones who really have no answer. It's not like the question asks us to formulate legitimately incoherent concepts, like the question about if God can make a rock so heavy that he can't lift, which asks us if God can make contradictions true. Can an all-powerful being make himself not all-powerful? Can he create an infinite finite? The question is, uh, like that is like asking if he can make a square circle. The question of the transcendental argument isn't asking for an incoherent. It's asking for the transcendental precondition that is needed to ground the realm of logical absolutes. It's not asking us to come up with contradictions. And what in the world does Occam's razor have to do with anything? Does he think that it's a violation of Occam's razor to posit a single explanation? Now, I'm kind of at a point where I think Occam's razor is so overused that it's almost become useless. Occam's razor is not a logical law, by the way. It's a rule of thumb when deciding between two equally plausible explanations. The problem is that God right now is the only possible explanation for the laws of logic. Notice that Matt doesn't give a single possible alternative explanation. This means that there's no competing, equally plausible explanation. God does not get cut by the razor on this one. Matt here is just begging the question from weakness to weakness.
1: So the transcendental argument, otherwise known as TAG, is essentially a presop argument, right? There is a standard giver. The only reason that we have a standard a source, an absolute source for logic or morality or science or whatever is because that standard has
2: been put in place. Is that an accurate way to say it? Kind of. The actual transcendental argument for the existence of God, which we didn't hear in Memphis, is basically an attempt to justify why it's okay for them to presuppose the existence of God.
0: <laughs> an a- I'm sorry, an attempt to what? folks? This is why I have over and over and over again said and wrote that before you criticize a position, you really need to understand it first. Because here, the unthinking atheist and Matty D don't even attempt to understand the argument and rather play fast and loose with genetic fallacies about subjective psychology. They misrepresent the Christian position on this. Insofar as they do that, they are fighting straw men of their own making. The problem is that so-called skeptics who listen to this and never do a single modicum of research themselves, who will never crack open a book by Van Til or Bonson or Oliphant or Frame or Schaefer or or Lewis uh, or Lennox and so on, will never, ever, ever hear anything besides this, and like little blind sheep think, oh yeah, of course they're trying to justify the assumptions. Theists are irrational and stupid, and us brights are scientifically proven to have IQs, and will then be on their merry way. For the unthinking atheist, and Matty D here to portray it like this is just self-deception at best, and downright dishonest at worst. But that is giving them too much credit, and they even even understand their opponents before knee-jerk reacting against it. If a theist says it, it must be false, and they must only believe it out of wish fulfillment.
2: It is an attempted justification. Basically, they're saying, hey, we've got these laws of logic, identity, non-contradiction, excluded, middle. They're absolute. They represent truth statements. They form the basis of all rational thought. They are not dependent upon space, time, or individuals' minds. And I'm not necessarily completely sure about the last one.
0: And you're not sure about the last one? Well, then demonstrate it. They form the basis for all true thought, but they can exist apart from a mind? Fascinating.
2: They're not contingent upon the material world. I'm not completely sure about that, but I I think that's the case.
0: Not contingent upon the material world. He thinks that's the case, but he's not sure. Well, did they exist prior to the existence of the universe? He must say yes, or else all kinds of contradictions would follow. That the laws existed and not existed before. Uh, that the universe began, the universe didn't begin. That the universe is finite, but it's also not finite. I mean, anything could happen if the laws of logic came into existence with the material world. The material world obeys the laws of logic, doesn't create the laws of logic
2: because they would still apply if there was nothing nothing is nothing it's not not nothing and you know etc and because they want to try to claim that they're conceptual the logical absolutes must reflect some mind and therefore God's mind is the only transcendent mind and then we have to go back to what Tracy said earlier which is how on earth did you determine that there is some transcendent mind that you can tie this to how did you get there
0: as the necessary transcendental precondition and the impossibility of the contrary try to argue some other thesis what other basis besides mind do you have to offer to explain the existence of laws of thought they have none and why would we need some other means to prove that there is a transcendent mind imagine I said to you prove to me that you have a mind And you start telling me that you have thoughts and will and can speak to me. And I say, no, 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 but prove to me that you have a mind. You can't use those features to show that you have a mind. You must prove by some other means that you have a mind before you can posit your mind as an explanation for those features. You would likely look at me like I was an idiot and move on. The same is true here. God is the only possible basis for the laws of logic. They can't wriggle out of it by saying, yes, but you must prove that God exists by other means before you can posit God as an explanation here. No. No, I don't, actually. If God is the only possible explanation here, categorically, then the, then God is the only categorical explanation. No, I don't need to prove him on some other basis. If I have some premise P that P exists if and only if Q, then if P obtains, then Q necessarily obtains also. So if I only have laws of logic if God exists, and if the laws of logic exist, then God necessarily exists as the transcendent necessary precondition for those laws of logic. So no, Matty D., I don't need to prove by some other means to your satisfaction that God exists before the transcendental argument is
2: used. And there's no justification for it, and that's why it's called presuppositional apologetics.
1: The presupposition could come from a place other than divine revelation. I don't presuppose it because I heard the voice of God, but because what? What other premise would I have to presuppose the existence of God?
0: (laughs) I'm sorry. No justification, and that's why it's called presuppositional apologetics? I mean, are you kidding me? This is not only philosophically totally inane, but historically ludicrous as well. It's called presuppositionalism because it deals with the level of presuppositions in all worldviews and asks on what basis any worldview can provide an adequate foundation for these features of reality. It has nothing to do with not requiring any justification. This is just downright dishonest on on Matt's part. Now, he's a smart guy. I doubt he doesn't know that he's being intentionally dishonest here. If he isn't being intentionally dishonest, then he really is that ignorant, and he should step down from the show because someone with that bad of a grasp of these concepts has no business leading so many people into intentional ignorance. This is just abysmally bad, and this is what passes for reason for so many so-called quote-unquote skeptics. I can't tell you how often people just parrot off this kind of thing to me and have clearly not engaged a single fiber of gray matter in between their ears beyond simple read, memorize, and repeat I've argued before in this episode and I've argued elsewhere so often that most of these vociferous atheistic fundamentalists if you ask them the kind of Christianity that they held to before they were atheists it's almost always the most hard right, fundamentalistic legalistic, Pelagian anti-intellectual brand of Christianity you could find. Hardcore Southern Baptists, Assembly of God, Seventh-day Adventists and so when they come to atheism they rapidly just become the atheistic version of that same thing. And we're going to see this here, uh, that it rears its head over and over and over again. I mean, just wait until we start getting into the psychologizing about believers and fear-based belief. That's coming, by the way, and it's fantastic. But for now, it's just showing that they are just unworthy willing to even first comprehend the arguments of those that they hate. They say they don't hate, but bigotry is always hate. And this is just bigotry with a very thin academic veneer laid over it. It's that bad.
2: Merely being convinced that the logical absolutes need some foundation and that the God concept is defined as having the characteristics that you are convinced would serve as a foundation, you wouldn't need any actual Revelation or anything like that, you could just say, I'm convinced the logical absolutes are true. But I'm also convinced that they need a foundation. And it appears to me that God has been defined in such a way that it would be a reasonable foundation. And so I'm just going to presuppose God.
0: See, there it is again. It is so totally ignorant to just ignore what the actual argument is and pretend as if it's it's just saying well i'm just a presupposing god because i want that to be true it's just getting more and more absurd as we go down this rabbit hole
2: and that when you go back to look at what the types of answers that psi gave on the rare occasions when he gave answers you know it's well, why does God do it this way? And his answer at that point is, for reasons that are sufficient to God. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I mean, it's a huge tap dance.
0: No, it's not a huge tap dance, and he only thinks it is because he's a sloppy thinker, because he doesn't realize that he slides from internal critique to external presumption. So when you ask why God did something, should we expect to know all the reasons why God does something? No, God works because of the reason God chooses to work. That's the same thing for us. I do certain actions because of my certain choices about those actions. Sometimes we know why, sometimes we don't. It's like Matt thinks that if God exists, we should have some kind of complete and absolute full disclosure such that we can always know exactly why God acts in such a way or allows some event to come to pass well, why, on Christianity, should we expect that? Has he never read Job? Now, he may want to say, but you haven't proven God exists, so you can't appeal to God. But the problem is, not only that I think that the Transcendental does allow us to know with confidence that God exists, uh, the problem... Uh, the. That it also shows that we can have confidence that God exists as our absolute authority, but also the question of why would God allow X is a question of an internal critique. That is, it's basically a question, for the sake of argument, I agree that God exists, so why does God allow X? Well, if you agree that God exists for the sake of argument, you must agree to allow all that is meant by God or believed by Christians about God, because that is the concept that we are defending. And if you do that, then you also get the position of Job, where sometimes, you know what, we don't always know why God allows certain things, and that's okay. But you cannot use that as some kind of internal critique, and then when the tension is resolved within Christianity, say, yeah, well, God doesn't exist anyways. It's this kind of sloppy discourse that makes these guys so troubling to listen to. I keep saying it, this is what passes for reason for so many atheists and anti-theistic fundamentalists, for quote-unquote, air-quote, skeptics. Well, and
4: also what Aaron was saying earlier about the idea of plugging in God as opposed to natural explanations, and say, it's, to me, it's less about the problem of them claiming that it's God, as they're making a positive claim that it can't be nature.
0: Well, that's the question. Can it be true? If you want nature to act as a foundation for the realm of abstract, universal, absolute, transcendent, immutable laws of thought and rules of inference for true thoughts, then make the case for it. So far, you haven't. And we have zero reason to think that nature can even qualify because nature itself is governed by these laws. If it is governed by the laws, then it cannot be the foundation for them. Again, these laws are prior to the existence of the natural cosmos, or else you get all kinds of absurd positions like the universe could come into existence and not come into existence, or nature could have produced other laws of logic and so on. Here, Tracy is just begging the question of naturalism, which is her only recourse, because if she actually tried to defend a natural basis for the laws of logic, she would end up in all kinds of absurd incoherencies.
4: So they're not just saying it has to be God, they're saying nature can't do this. And that's where I get kind of baffled, because I'm just like, how can you make the assertion that nature can't do it? Like, how do you know this?
0: because of the impossibility of the contrary. Nature cannot function as a foundation for the laws of logic. I mean, ever since Hume, naturalism has had the hell of a time overcoming the problem of induction. How can you draw any confident conclusion of what will happen based on what has happened? Just because the laws of nature operated in the past, there's no confidence that they will act the same way in the future. Here, the problem is even harder. Not only can they not ground inductive reasoning, here Tracy cannot even ground the very laws of logic and rules of inference that she is at this very moment trying to employ to make her case. Here, she's trying to use logic, but cannot provide an adequate basis for logic on her own worldview. Waving the magic wand of nature over the question is not going to help her any more than saying that the ink is the foundation for the ideas being penned.
4: And how do you say that in the face of most of it being explained by natural causes and that all making perfect sense up till now?
0: (laughs) Most of what? Most of the laws of logic being explained by natural causes? I mean, she can't be serious. And this is where Matt and the unthinking atheist and Aaron Ra, if they were at all concerned with truth, should pipe in and just tell her to stop shooting herself in the foot.
4: It doesn't make sense to me that somebody would look at what nature is doing and only see nature doing it and then assert that something must be behind it. And the logical absolutes are kind of the same way.
0: And the logical absolutes are kind of the same way? So first she equivocates with what nature does. She's actually pretty vague, but she got her naturalistic brownie points by mentioning nature and matter. Hashtag science. But logical absolutes are kind of the same way? I mean, this is just... the. Any, any philosophy 101 student, if they argued this in a paper, would fail.
4: When somebody points them out and says, look at this, what's behind them? My question is, what makes you think they're not foundational? Let's tie this into the cosmological argument.
0: And there it is. Did, did you hear it, folks? Did, did you hear it? Did, did you hear it? What makes you think they're not
4: foundational?
0: She just proved the case for the transcendental argument. She just admitted that there is no foundation on naturalism for the laws of logic. It's not nature. They're just foundational. It's just axiomatic. She doesn't want to think about foundations of the laws of logic. She just wants to baldly assume them as foundational. Did you folks in the back row catch that? Thank you, Tracy. Thank you for proving my point. You admit you cannot ground them, and your previous comment about nature grounding them is absolutely meaningless, and that you want them to just be foundational. The question is, what does that even mean? I mean, I know what it means for a mind to be logical, for thoughts to be rational, for arguments to be Uh, logically coherent i don't know what it means to say that the law of non-contradiction just exists as some kind of abstract free-floating kind of platonic thing
4: what makes you think they're not foundational The, the
0: laws of logic are foundational you heard it here folks the laws of logic are just foundational At this point, the unthinking atheist then tries to sweep up the mess by quickly moving into the cosmological argument, and that's where we're going to pick up next time. Thank you again for joining us here on the Freed Thinker Podcast. If you'd like this episode and more, visit me at the blog at thefreedthinkerpodcast.blogspot.com or email me at freedthinkerpodcast at gmail.com or stop by and visit us on Facebook. Thanks again, and I hope you're having a great day.